You're listening to Bible Prophecy Talk on the Revelations Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome to BibleProphecyTalk.com. My name is Chris. This is the show that I hope will look soberly at Bible prophecy about topics that are not often covered. It's kind of outside the box, but firmly rooted in a solid hermeneutic that takes Scripture at face value. Um, we are premillennial, dispensational, and futurist in our view of prophecy. We certainly believe that all Scripture interprets Scripture and that there are no contradictions. So if you have a contradiction, you probably have the wrong interpretation of prophecy. I think any good student of Bible prophecy will have had to, at several times in their uh, journey, have had to backtrack a little bit and sort of swallow your pride. Because the Bible is really cool. The Bible is really big, and there's just no way to figure it all out. But at the same time, I think that it's there for us to try. Bible prophecy is complicated, but it's not impossible. I think that it, by comparing Scripture with Scripture primarily, we can really discover a lot of what the Bible has to say. So let's transition into today's show, which is going to be a look at the War of Gog. Magog. And I'm just going to talk a little bit about it. I'm going to review a paper that I read last night called A Fresh Look at Ezekiel 38 and 39 from Ralph Alexander at Western Conservative Baptist Seminary in Portland, Oregon. Um, I really like this paper, um, not just because I tend to agree with it. In fact, uh, I, I found this paper. It was the only paper that I could find on the timing of Ezekiel 38 and 39. And I found it to be refreshing and uh, important, and so we'll discuss it. I, I'm sure there there are more papers in, in in the journals out there about this about this uh, this section of scripture, but I didn't find any, and I am uh, very much open to to learning more about this very difficult section of scripture. Like many of you, I'm assuming that many of you are premillennial and dispensational in your in your leanings, and uh, many of you, like me, have believed that Gog Magog was the next event on the horizon. It's really shaped a lot of Bible prophecy talk out there, in that you know people are looking to see what is on the horizon geopolitically, and saying that that is somehow relevant to what they believe is the next event prophetically Gog Magog. Some people do not take Gog Magog to be the next event prophetically, but maybe some point um, at some point around the beginning of the seven uh, year period. And then, uh, you know, all the way up to Armageddon somewhere in there, there's a lot of different views. And I think that the reason why there's so many different sort of views about this should be a question to us, about why it's so wishy-washy. And, and and there's not that many papers on it because I feel like there is no scriptural support for putting it at any place except for possibly somewhere around Armageddon or uh, the very definite place that it will be is in Revelation 20. The only question is, whether will there be a double fulfillment? That is, will it happen at Revelation 20, which clearly says it is after the thousand-year period. Then Satan is let out. He gathers the nations. The, they besiege the uh, uh, beloved city. And the Gog-Magog war, essentially described at length by Ezekiel, occurs there in Revelation 20. The, the question is, does that happen before the millennium begins as well? 
That's the only question, whether it's a double fulfillment, because it certainly happens after the millennium. This paper takes a look at various things. Context, I think, is something I never really considered about uh, too much in Ezekiel. You know, we, we know 38 and 39 are the chapters where Gog Magog is, so we go read those chapters up and down, and sometimes we forget uh, that there are some chapters surrounding it, and, and those, I think, are really important. The first part of this paper looks at the context of that, and I'll talk a little bit more about the context uh, earlier, because it's one of the reasons I was so happy and re refreshed to find this paper is because it's something that I've been thinking a lot about recently. Anyway, they go in about the context and talk about how it's very obvious from the context of Ezekiel that 38 and 39 fits exactly where you would expect the millennium as we understand it to expect to 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 be they would the Jewish people would describe this as as the messianic age or or whatnot um it's very clear in the language he also points out several chronological phrases are used after many days in the latter years the we see these connected uh, you know for a long time we see these connected to the eschaton jeremiah thirty two fourteen hosea three four daniel eight twenty six in other places. So there's these chronological timestamps, um, which is, of course, interesting given the fact that it connects in so many different ways to Revelation 20, which is a unique time period that would be referred to uh, in this way. I mean, if you're trying to refer to a time after the Messianic age, the thousand year period, you, you, the language there. Uh, would perfectly fit. But more than that, he talks a, a lot about the other types of language used. For for instance, um, he says here, phrases places these events at the end time, for this phrase is most frequently employed to designate the time of Israel's final restor restoration to the land and the period of the Messiah's rule. He quotes Isaiah 2, 2, Jeremiah 23, 20, uh, also 30, 24, Hosea 3, 5, Micah 4, 1, Daniel 10, 14. Ezekiel also declares that these events occur when the land is, quote, land of Israel is, quote, restored from the sword. He quotes the Hebrew here, Ezekiel 38, 8, Ezekiel 38, 36, 1 through 15, and when the people of Israel had, quote, been gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel. I want to talk about that, too, the mountains of Israel idea. This is this is a really interesting phrase, and he goes on to talk about the living securely, and these, these no one's going to make them afraid, and he compares them to different things, other places in the Bible. But this mountains of Israel thing is interesting in light of what Ezekiel then writes in Ezekiel 40 through 48, which is, very complex, detailed arrangements of what the millennium will look like. Ezekiel 40-48, as we'll talk about in, in detail later, is really, really uh, all about the millennium. And it talks about the mountains of Israel there. It's interesting that when people try to map out exactly where Zion is in Ezekiel's uh, millennium, they find it somewhat differently placed Certainly different geography. It's on top of a plateau. Two rivers are running on either side of it. Um, one all the way to the Mediterranean. One all the way to the Dead Sea. But mountains of Israel is mentioned there too. And there's a great paper out there. And if you if you get a chance to see it, it's sort of a rare paper, but you can Google it and find it with uh, Google's Theological Journal search. But you could probably just type in this into to Google, which is Zechariah in relation to Ezekiel 40 through 48 by McKay, Cameron 
Cameron McKay, I believe is his name, a great paper that goes into, um, he, he was somewhat of a, a, a brilliant scholar on the book of Ezekiel, very conservative journal, and he, um, he does a great job in showing the language that Zechariah is employing is the language that's specifically attributed to Ezekiel's 40 through 48, this very detailed uh, imagery of the millennium. It's very complex, this cubit, that cubit. You know, it's describing a temple that is the size of current the current city of Jerusalem. It's describing a Jerusalem that's 10 times the size of current Jerusalem, and it's all laid out in very technical detail. So there's a lot of detail going on there. And if you know those things, which I don't claim to, but these guys apparently do, and reference in their papers, you know, these these language, uh, you know, stamps like, as we he goes on to say here, living securely, no one will make them afraid. You know, these are, these are the kinds of things that people try to explain away when they're trying to make the Gog-Magog war at any time before... Um, Armageddon or at Armageddon they're trying to explain well yes Armageddon but they won't be made afraid because or they'll be living securely because but really the language of Ezekiel 38 seems to go out of its way to say no 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 they're really living securely and when you apply um, what I'll talk about a little bit later is this pattern that shows up all through scripture this um, this fourfold uh, ending to the great prophetic books like Zechariah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Joel, Zephaniah, and Revelation. Um, Ezekiel is a possible exception there, which we'll talk about later. The, the, they all end the same way with this, with this first talking about the day of the Lord passages. Just think in terms of Revelation and you'll understand exactly what I mean. The day of the Lord, much of Revelation is about the day of the Lord. But then comes the millennium, Revelation 20. Uh, also in Revelation 20, we see the Gog-Magog war. And then we see the eternal kingdom, Revelation 21. So you've got four things that happen. Day of the Lord, millennium, Gog, Magog, eternal kingdom. There is a interesting thing that happens at the at these books like Isaiah or uh, Zephaniah or Joel or whatever, is that uh, they have this anticlimactic ending. You know, the book's almost over, and then it talks about, how the Lord is there and they're living securely, that, that living securely phrase, that's why I'm making a big deal about this, is that it's not just that living securely is mentioned here in Ezekiel 38 and 39. When you start to see this pattern in other places, it talks about the living securely is pretty much like the best thing that happens in the millennium. Because I, I don't mean to to say that the millennium won't be really, really awesome, because I think that it will, but it's not like the greatest thing ever. This is still before the great white throne judgment. There's still going to be, as, as John records, a number that is bigger than the sands of the sea that comes against at the end of this thousand years, you know, that they were, they were living during the thousand years. They come against to war against the living Christ at the end of the thousand year period. So, you know, it's not perfect there. Now, granted, you could say, well, Satan gets let out and then they decide to sin again. But Isaiah talks about the millennium in terms of there is sin there. You know, Christ is ruling with a rod of iron, but he still needs the rod. God has no grandchildren. Just because the parents of the millennium may, be, may know the Lord doesn't mean their children will. They, there's a lot of things about the millennium when you really start to dig it out that it's not that great. But it is consistently mentioned with these words of securely, living securely. And you can imagine, there's no walls, there's no need for walls. They haven't, And that's exactly what, what, one of the ways you can tell that that's what Ezekiel's talking about here. 
Um, now, in terms of the, the, the Gog is Russia and Tubal and Put or this and all the speculation about that, um, I would just be super careful about that. Um, the the literature has just destroyed that from an etymological standpoint, from uh, all kinds of different standpoints, the idea that Gog is Russia. I, I can't imagine that anybody except for this really pop view of of this is still thinking that that's something that if you are mad at me now for saying that you need to go check it out to see if you can challenge that and, and come out of it still thinking that Gog is Russia and things like that. I don't have a problem with those being connected to different nations or whatever. But when you really look at the people that are trying desperately to figure out what that is from a scholarly standpoint, they are coming up empty. They're saying, look, it could be this. It could not be this. Um, I don't think it's all that necessary to do. I think if it was necessary to do, we would know. The Bible would tell us. But considering just this one fact alone, that Revelation 20, um, Revelation 20 says that Gog Magog, says those words, Gog Magog, the only other time those words are mentioned besides Ezekiel 38 and 39. And... Um, that should let us know that there's someone called Gog Magog at the end of the thousand-year period in which Christ rules and reigns from earth. Now, that's looking pretty far in advance. What if Gog Magog makes sense, you know, a thousand years from now? And what good is it for us to sit running around trying to figure out what Gog Magog means and where it is? Uh, let alone when it, you know trying to say that it's going to be the next prophetic event in history. Now, I don't have a problem necessarily with the double fulfillment uh, in one sense. This paper, one thing I would agree, disagree rather with, with this paper on is the emphasis that they put on Revelation 19 talking about the, the Feast of the Birds. Well, before we get to the Feast of the Birds, let me talk a little bit about something that has always hung me up with Ezekiel. And, and that is, um, Ezekiel, I didn't explain what I meant so much about the other issue too. Um, we'll get into that right now. Okay. So Ezekiel, this is the theory. Ezekiel ends technically, Ezekiel chapter one ends with Ezekiel chapter 39, Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48 about the millennium. Circula either circulated as the second book. I'm not dogmatic about that, and it doesn't really change this position if it's not true. Um, but but I say that because Josephus um, says in Antiquities... Let me get the reference here for you. Antiquities 10.5.1. It's 10.5.1. Um, that, that Ezekiel circulated two books. He, he, how does he say it? Um, he left behind two books. Now, the there's a lot of views on that. Some people believe he's talking about an apocryphal book of Ezekiel. That's problematic because not only can we not tell if those apocryphal books that we now call you know Ezekiel existed at the time, but it's unlikely that Josephus would have considered them authoritative. There are other reasons and good scholars that believe that what's being talked about there is that the book of Ezekiel is essentially was circulated uh, in in two different books, if you will. The last part, Ezekiel 40 through 48, is all about the millennium. And so that's led people to say, 
well, Ezekiel 38 and 39 must therefore come before the millennium if if in the book itself, 38 and 39 come before 40 through 48. It's not something you would say out loud as a Bible scholar necessarily. And I'm not a Bible scholar. I don't want to give that the wrong impression. I'm just somebody that is really interested in learning about Bible prophecy. But um, it's not something you would say out loud because it's just ba a bad way to interpret the Bible. But it's something that you would think, like I certainly, you know, in dealing with it, I still always thought, well, it is there before the millennium. But consider this. Consider that, of course, Ezekiel 40 starts off with his usual uh, indication that he started a new thing. He's like, Ezekiel in the fourth month of the third year, whatever he says there exactly, I'm not sure. Um, but anyway, if you then look at, at Ezekiel, the end of Ezekiel, actually right at 39.20, I believe, he then starts to, that same pattern of he ends the Gog Magog War, starts talking about the eternal kingdom. Therefore, if you go back to Ezekiel 37, look how Ezekiel 37 ends. It ends with that same sort of anticlimactic, the Lord is there, everything's good now, they're dwelling in peace and safety, blah, blah, blah. I can't remember exactly what it says. And then it starts off with, and he, the nations are gathered together and in this big thing and Gog uh, and everything else. You'll see this exact same thing happen in Joel, Zechariah, Zephaniah, um, Isaiah. They all end like this. Revelation, of course, does too, where if you start to parse this out, and I'll put this in the show notes. If you go to BibleProphecyTalk.com, this will be in the show notes, just sort of a reference to what I mean here, like how it would be parsed out. For example, uh, Zechariah, let's say Zechariah 14, 1 through 5, would be talking about the Day of the Lord passages. Zechariah 14, 6 through 11 would be talking about the thousand-year period. Zechariah um, 14, 12 through 15 are talking about Gog Magog, and Zechariah 14, 16 through 21 are talking about the eternal kingdom. Similarly, you can do the same thing with Revelation, all the other ones I mentioned. They all end with this, if you parse it out. And um, anyway, so it's extremely interesting, and I think that is a confirmation that um, that we're on the right track here. But Let's talk now about what the, what I disagree with about this paper, which is talking about Revelation 19 and the bird feast. This is when, after the Antichrist, false prophet, and the beast gather the kings of the earth through this uh, frog uh, demon thing that happens. They gather the kings of the earth to war against um, Christ himself. Then there is a destruction of them and their... Uh, then he calls these birds to feast on these bodies. An interesting thing, of course, and a bit macabre, but indeed that is how how uh, it ends. In fact, it's the only time, besides Ezekiel 38 and 39, according to this paper, I haven't looked that up myself, um, which mentions this bird feast. And so there is a connection there that I think is worthy of connecting the two in, in at least that way. Also, I think that the concept of nations being gathered together and yet destroyed, that certainly seems to be a parallel. And those, those things cause me pause from saying that this is a totally separate event. Um, at the very least, at this point, I'd be like, well, maybe it's a double fulfillment indeed. So again, that's what you... That's where we are definitely have to be. Either a double fulfillment of Gog Magog occurs at some point before, or it's just at Revelation 20, because that's when we are told when it happens. 
very unambiguously. It says in the verse, after the thousand years were completed. So, anyway, let's just continue. So, the question, though, is there's a lot of things that do not fulfill Revelation 20 in this Revelation 19 scenario with the with Armageddon. For instance, none of what we talked about, about the millennium or being dwelling safely or, you know, it talks about them coming up to take riches and that obviously, the, you know, when you start to look at this in other passages and stuff and, and really dig around, it's talking about not only are they living in unwalled villages, living securely, but they're living quite well and uh, somewhat prosperous and all these other things that are not a part of Armageddon. I mean, Armageddon is extremely night and day from what is being described at the time before Gog Magog. The other issue I would have with that is this, that the number of the from the sands of the sea is, is what it says in Revelation 20. There is a massive amount of people that come against the beloved city in the after the millennium. So, and I, I would say a massive amount of people is an interesting thing because you have a thousand years where Isaiah talks about the millennium and says people are going to have extremely long lifetimes. So, so he even says like a sinner that dies or at a hundred will be considered accursed. Or you, he's just trying to say that they're going to live a long time. Now, if people are living longer lifespans and you've got a thousand years of peace, then you're going to have a population boom. And I would submit that that's where you could find a better uh, fulfillment of this sands of the sea number than you could at Armageddon. I, I would say at Armageddon, you have not only those believers that are raptured, you have the other believers that come to know the Lord during the the, the day of the Lord, the tribulation uh, period, then you're going to also have, um, well, they, I don't want to get my terms mixed up, come, during the day of the Lord, um, the they will be beheaded, so they're going to be gone by then. You're all Then you're left with the non-believers, and of them... Um, and I'm not saying every Christian will be beheaded, but you know maybe close to a lot of them anyway are going to be beheaded. So there's not going to be many believers at all on the earth at that point. You're going to have a lot of unbelievers there, and a third of them at least are dead. So, and who knows how many before that? It's just, it's just not a situation where you where you would expect the sands of the sea number to come into play, because there have been so many plagues that you could add up up to that last bowl and, you know, sands of the sea is, you know, there might be a lot of people, but, but I think it's different. And, and you go to Revelation, you, you read uh, that passage about um, that, and you read Ezekiel 38 and 39, I think you're going to see a lot of parallels there too. One of the reasons I think that too is that the whole idea of the burning of the weapons, and, you know, I know that I certainly used to believe that that had to be nuclear war and stuff because of the cross-reference to Zechariah 14 and their mouths and their tongues will dissolve in their mouths, their eyes and they're dissolving their sockets and all those kinds of ideas. Um, but that that's one thing. And we could talk about, well, I'm sure that whatever God does with the fire and brimstone, I mean, what, you know, he could destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and it didn't require nuclear weapons. It specifically says there that it's God. You know, it's God defending them. If indeed we're just talking about Revelation 20 for for now, it's it's Jesus 
in the middle of the city. I mean, I don't, I don't expect Jesus to be like roll out the ICBMs. You know, he doesn't really need any ICBMs. If that's at least Revelation twenty, uh, and I would submit, of course, the exact same thing is true with Ezekiel thirty-eight and thirty-nine, which I would say is talking about the millennium clearly. Um, but anyways, on to my disagreement with this guy. He agrees so much with me that this is millennial language. I say he agrees with me. I agree with him, I guess. Um, but he agrees so much in the idea that that Ezekiel 38 and 39 is in the millennium that he takes Revelation 19 and he relegates it to the millennium as well. He says Revelation 19 about the bird feast and stuff is not actually talking about the Battle of Armageddon. He says he knows this because the Battle of Armageddon has already been mentioned in Revelation 16 and, you know, before that. But I think that is wrong. I think that uh, just from um, studying the sort of format of how Revelation is laid out, it, it takes the same thing that, that a lot of uh, Hebrew writing does. It kind of gives you a chronological um, layout and then s- somewhat zooms in on a particular issue. For instance... Uh, at the end of Revelation 16, all of Revelation 16 is basically the bowls, one after the other. This bowl, that bowl, this bowl, that bowl, this bowl. And then and then it goes into Revelation 17 and 18, which is entirely about Mystery Babylon, which was taken care of during one of the bowl judgments just before. And you see the same thing happening with, say, uh, Revelation 13, which is zooming in to give you more information about... Um, about the the false prophet and the antichrist it, it, it and it takes their career basically from you know all the way from the beginning to end same thing with the uh two witnesses in revelation 11 you see you know you're going along quite chronologically well but when it gets to wanting to zoom into the uh two witnesses it takes you from the first three and a half years when they show up all the way to the day that they're killed. You shouldn't expect that to therefore, in Revelation 11, to have transpired three and a half years in the course of the timeline. You, you've just been zoomed in to show more information about a particular character in this drama. This happens in the Bible all the time. Even in Genesis, the, the creation account, of course, is spoken of in, in broader terms and zoomed in and looked at some issues. You know, some people have... Uh, demonstrated that quite well. Also, Matthew 24 is a good example. I mean, this is just a very consistent use of the language. Anyway, um, so I think he fails to see that Revelation 19 is doing that, and he simply says it was already mentioned in Revelation 16, so Revelation 19 about the birds is not, uh, in fact, talking about Armageddon. It's, It's talking about the millennium, and so he just relegates that to the millennium as well. I would say that is problematic. What I would say, my, my what I'm left with though is somewhat problematic too, because um, I'm left with essentially saying that Gog Magog is typified in some ways by the end uh, by by Armageddon, but it is no way able to be fulfilled. Ezekiel 38 and 39, the things that are said there are no in no way able to be fulfilled with any. Um, uh, seriousness. It was certainly no completion until after the millennium. That is when Ezekiel, what Ezekiel 38 and 39 is talking about. The fact that there's a bird feast and a gathering against uh, God in, in Armageddon, and those two things I would say are the similarities. There are, there are far too many differences. 
typology and things happen, but but I would I would not call that a double fulfillment necessarily either because it's not a double fulfillment. There are too many things that are different. Now, I want to answer some of the objections that some people have, which is in defending the idea that Gog Magog is before um, before the, you know, whatever, any time before that. They will say, well, in Revelation 20, it says those they come from the four corners of the earth, yet in uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39, it talks about, you know, push or whatever, you know, put and, and cush and all the different names. But notice that those names are the four cardinal directions in Ezekiel 38 and 39. I think that John is simply uh, summarizing what he would probably have known better than us is that it was using, as the Bible often does, names to to typify sort of directions, certainly used all the time in regard to Israel and different things like that. I think that to say that it's, well, the one in Revelation is, is global and the one in Ezekiel is, is local is is really a weak argument for several reasons. And I would love to ask anyone to produce, I'm not saying, I'm not asking you in that I don't think it's out there, I'm asking you because I'd like to read it and I haven't found it, to produce a scholarly article which um, suggests that Ezekiel 38 and 39 is the next event on the prophetic calendar or any of the sort of um, kind of view that Hal Lindsey uh, would promote. I, I would like to know that particularly because I feel like that's what a lot of the prophecy world is is doing with their time they're spending it looking at what nation does this in relation to israel and that's all important i don't want to diminish that's important importance because i think that is a good way to determine prophecy but i don't think that the way that they are looking at it is beneficial and in fact i think by suggesting that that the gog magog war will will reconcile israel to god before the day of the lord completes or anything like that is, is is terribly wrong and sets it, us up, I believe, for um, uh, deception. Of course, I don't think that the the you know true elect are going to um, are going to believe the Antichrist or anything like that. But I certainly believe that by believing that the Gog Magog war is a a precursor event that we should be looking for, it can only benefit the Antichrist. And I say that because I think the Antichrist uh, will will claim to be uh, the Messiah. I think that he will, but in order to be a legitimate Messiah, he must defeat Israel's enemies and he must uh, make Jerusalem the capital of the world. It's 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 uh, not a uh, it's not a, a, a argument. If anybody wants to really claim to be um, Israel's king, they have to deliver them from their enemies, and they have to give them peace. They have to make Jerusalem the the capital city of the world. It's it's a it's a non negotiable. Um, uh, prerequisite for being Israel's Messiah. So, and they've always looked for that. It was one of the reasons that Jesus was rejected at the time, although I believe he will be embraced later on. Uh, I believe he was rejected because he did not offer them that at that moment. In fact, as he was ascending into heaven, I still think his disciples were holding out for that. In fact, they said uh, in the book of Acts chapter 1, Lord, will you not restore Judea at this time? They were still looking for that fulfillment 
So I guess I'll cut this rant short here. I want to thank everybody for listening to BibleProphecyTalk.com. If you want to see uh, in the show notes the papers that I was talking about, a fresh look at Ezekiel 38 and 39 from Ralph Alexander or um, Zechariah in relation to Ezekiel 40 through 48. Or if you want to see the, the chart of the scriptures that I was talking about, which parse out the day of the Lord, the millennium the Gog-Magog War, and the Eternal Kingdom as best as I can. I'm sure that there are plenty of flubs there, but uh, at least I hope that it will get us sort of thinking more uh, about the possibility that there is a very interesting pattern at the end of these great prophetic books like Joel, Zechariah, Zephaniah, Isaiah. So with that, I will uh, encourage you to visit our website. And also comment and on this on iTunes about the show. Rate it on iTunes. I'd really appreciate that. And thank you very much. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.